when I tell people it's, you know, yeah, the story's hard, but, um, and I've had people that are like, I had to put it down. I'm like, you got to keep reading. Here's the thing, right? The front part is hard, right? And the middle part talks about the trauma, but that third part is really what the book's all about. It's about recovery. It's about hope. From the mountains to the east, to the caves to the west, you're listening to The Real WTH Show. Fresh cut grass, dirt, and love. I am a real American. Fight for the rights of every man. I am a real American. Fight for what's right. Fight for your life. You cannot beat the quality, consistency, and the price. What is up, everybody? Welcome to episode 100 and dude, you're what you're pulling a handy. You just you just you just drink. Oh, do, you the want, microphone. do you want to redo this one? No, we're not redoing this one. We're okay. leaving it in. That was Wilson okay. drinking water or something. I don't know what it is. Yeah, water. This is episode 110, dude. That's awesome. 110. Yeah. So we're trucking along, man. 110. You know, it seemed like yesterday was like our 100th episode. Yeah. Remember when we first started and we only did it like every other week? We did, didn't we? Yeah. I forgot about that. And they're like four hour long episodes. Yeah. But there's video games. Still great episode. <laughs> I mean, we have episodes that cover video games, things that we're afraid that'll happen to us, like our fears. And then we have awesome guests on like we're going to have on today. Yeah. I'm really excited about today's guest. I, I was really excited. Too. Yeah, we're recording this backwards. <laughs> so this is awkward for us because uh, we, we didn't want to bore him with our antics beforehand. So we did the interview first and we're going to put it last. That's kind of a look behind the curtain. What happens here at um, are we calling it the cave still the caves? Sure. Sure. You know, the the studios, multiple the real WTH studios LLC or whatever. Yeah. This is a giant tunnel that connects both of them. Like after I'm done here, I run back to California to help edit like Elon Musk underground bullet train thing. Exactly, dude. Yeah. I mean, he's a we're going to have him on next episode, like on upload the Hyperloop train. (laughs) Yeah, that's actually what I was thinking. (laughs) I was telling my wife about that. I go, I go, I go, wow. I'm like, it's like Elon Musk. He he, he has that. Well, yeah, it's like in Arizona. There's like, have you have you seen the video of those things Uh -uh. in Japan? They have the high speed like bullet train things. They showed one going through a station like you can't even see it. Yeah. Is it running on magnets? Yeah, magnets. Um, But they don't have it going that far yet. Right. Because there's I have no idea. Some prototype. But man, good thing. California has that really awesome old school, you know, train from back to the future, but calling it high speed rail that's in the middle of Fresno and just sitting there. This the sorry, the track itself. I could have done that. Yeah. <laughs> so people want to know, and I know I've been curious, uh, you know, about the world famous segment. Oh, yeah. Speaking of uh, dog bowls. Beers and cheers. Yeah, dude. What are you drinking? I'm curious. It looked like a water. It, it did. 
it's uh it came out of that same pack the last one came out of it's one of what, what was the last one i forget the last one was golden road brewing big hazy wolf okay yeah this is from elysian which makes one of my favorite beers they make space dust um which is a double ipa but this one is contact haze hazy ipa and it's a weird uh little picture on there on the front it's uh got a guy's head coming out of the ground and his face is like peeled off and there's just a brain inside and then there's a bunch of people on the ground outside it's really weird nothing makes me want to drink a beer than that oh it kind of the, the writing on it looks like one of those old school like frankenstein like those yeah, black and white yeah. movies okay i have no idea i wonder if it says anything oh it does Ooh, read it, it says ooh, this is long oh never mind there's two separate things uh the day the world stood still and a lesion brewed a hazy ipa rules were broken to bring you contact haze a tangled chemistry of mild haze low bitterness and explosion of hop aroma bursts of bright raspberry currant citrus current. guava I don't know. Not like water current. Does it have any of this in it? For people that bad at Cap Care. Is that in it? Yeah, probably. Okay. And passion fruit with a slight floral note. Nice. Yeah. This is that value of Rowdy Pack you got at Costco? Costco or Sam's Club. One of the two. Yeah. Okay. It's pretty good. I I didn't get a look at the actual like color of it. Like if it really is a good hazy, you know? But uh, it's all right. I would give it a uh, 3.75. I think that's what you gave the Big Hazy Wolf as well. So I think yeah, um, the Big Hazy it's Wolf, 3.75, yeah. Yeah. And if it's a pack of, you know, 24 beers for like $26, 3.75 on all of them is not that bad. Yeah. I mean, especially when you're going out of five. So that's pretty good. Each beer you got out of there is from a different brewery or, or any of the I think same? so. I don't okay. I don't think they're same. One's from Kona Brewing. I haven't done that one yet. Maybe there's only three in this one. I can't remember. Oh yeah, there is only three. There's eight of each. So the other one's from Kona. Okay. Good stuff. And then I'm just drinking my my sparkling water. My uh what which one was it? The I keep I keep gonna say great American. Clear American. Clear American. Oh, I finally found that Limitus water. I think they have it at uh, Kroger, but I didn't get it. They have some actual different flavors there, like uh, that I haven't heard people actually bring up yet, like like combinations. Yeah, this one is um, lavender chill. La- that's the one I was like lavender. No, nah, lavender's different though. Does it taste like lavender? Yeah. Okay, because I don't. I don't want my. It's not bad either. I don't want my water smelling like or tasting like soap. Yeah, this doesn't. No. Then there's a mango one that's really good. And then a cherry lemon one that's pretty good. That might be pretty good. Yeah. So um, of course, you know, we know my waters. Bobby. It's clean. It's cold. And that's what I call high quality tool. Thanks. Thanks, Bobby. He's uh, you know, gearing up for baseball season. You know, even though it's football, but you know, someone needs a water boy, Dodger. Yeah. Um, so today. Um, I'm springing this one on Wilson. He he may or may not know about this. I don't know. Um, but he doesn't know that I'm doing this. Um, I am going to do a cheers right now for a special someone. Uh, May 13th last year was a very hard day for Wilson and his family. They lost, um, uh, what was it, your cousin? 
Lieutenant Colonel Glenn Renfrey. And they've actually, this is kind of hard for me to talk about. Just I've never met him, but this is emotional. They made a, a conference hall, conference room dedicated to him. Where at? I haven't there, even heard about this. The Marion Military Institute. Oh, wow. Um, there's a full-blown plaque. I can't even read it. Just because this, when your dad sent this to me originally, I knew that this was special to your family because I know he was special to you guys. So, and then I talked to your sister. She sent me some pictures. Um, I'll probably just send this to you, but I'm going to show them to you now. There's like a plaque that's out in front of the conference room. Mm -hmm. Then there's another one that has him. And then they have, the, it's called the GDR ROTC conference room. And they're supposedly going to be doing a, uh, there was a video that went around of them dedicating the conference room to him, which I think is pretty cool on the MMI website. There should be a full on article up on it. I think this coming week, I wasn't sure if you knew about it and, and no, I had no idea. Your dad reached out to me. He's all, Hey, let's do this. Cheers. So I'm like, he's, all, I don't know if Wilson knows about it. I'm like, I think this would be kind of cool to spring this on him. Cause I know Glenn met a lot to Wilson and your brother and your sister, your whole family. You know, I, I, I saw that. I was like, I got to get a, your dad said that your sister, Sarah, we've had Sarah on the show before. Mm -hmm. And I reached out to her and I said, cause I think she watched, there was a video of it. And I said, what do you know about it? And so uh, this is what she said. Uh, Cause like I said, the article hasn't been posted yet. So I can't really read exactly what it is. I'm sure I, I will, I will read it once it gets posted. But she says the Army and Marion Military Institute gave Glenn the honor of naming the conference room after him. It's their small training room, meeting and leadership room. Um, and it says uh, she thinks that they said something about once it expands, his name will still carry over. And um, this is a big deal because it's very difficult to get your name plaque on a federal building. And I heard that I think that has to be passed through Congress oh. to have that happen. So this is a huge honor. Yeah. So. Uh, again, this cheers is going out to Glenn Renfrey, but this is also going out to MMI for uh, for doing this for them. So uh, cheers. Cheers. So today we have a guest and we we, we've been hyping this up and uh, it does not disappoint. Not at all. It's no. um, he's very open about what Everything. happened. Um, he tells the story and. Don't think that just because you hear the story, you heard everything. No, this is like highlights. This is what's a, in the book. This is like a Cliff Notes version of like, hey, what happened to the Titanic? Oh, well, it hit an iceberg. There's so much more that happened there, you know, yeah. little that make the story um, more amazing. And I think um, more under relatable as, as well. And uh, as we, we told before, we, we're doing this book. It's called Facing Evil by scott brown and victoria newman and you can and buy liz it. brown and liz brown yeah she's not on the front she should he said her name should be on the front too yeah i heard, I heard an article him say that um and and you know we're gonna plug the heck out of this book in the websites um highly recommend you getting this um wilson and i have already started the other podcast where we've uh actually um started reading it and uh, not ripping apart, but kind of using it like a, like a, like a book study, you know, and just uh, talking about certain things and maybe even what would we do in certain situations and, and everything. And, and, and there, and I, 
there's probably some funny things in there that you'll even hear as well. I'm really excited about this and, and we are honored to have on first time ever having on Deputy Scott Brown and author Deputy Scott Brown. So here we have Deputy Scott Brown with the Sacramento County Sheriff's Department. And we've been uh, we've been uh, pumping this up for a few weeks, right, Wilson? Yeah, I'm yeah. excited because uh, we just started the book that he wrote, Facing Evil. And uh, we're only a few chapters in. And it's it's already I love the way that you wrote it, Scott. Like it's like you, I don't know. I like how you put like the dates and everything. You tell like a story. Then you kind of go back, put another date, tell that story. I like it. Yeah, I mean, it, it, we went through several versions uh, when we were writing and editing. Uh, the first one was really bad. I mean, the content was the same, but we tried to, every time a new person was part of the story, we tried to do it from their voice and it got extremely confusing. And then at one point you like, you didn't know which mic, cause there's a ton of mics up in Placer. <laughs> and so we didn't know which one was talking and stuff like that. And we, we all read it separately and then came together, my wife, Vicky and I. And, uh, and then once we got back together, we're like, we all agreed that we needed to find something to do. Um, a lot of the formatting, I mean, I'm, I, I got to give Vicky full credit on a ton of that kind of stuff. I mean, I gave the content, um, you know, I wrote her a lot of the gibberish and jargon and, and the, that kind of stuff, but she's the one that turned it into the format, the book that it is. Uh, I mean, she, she did an amazing job and more than, and she's more than just your regular ghostwriter co-author kind of thing. She did interviews. She researched the report. I mean, a ton of stuff. And, and then she's a personal friend. I've known her for a long time. And how uh, many pages was the report? Oh, shoot. Uh, I have no idea. It came on a thumb drive. It was uh, like 7,000 or something, probably yeah, 7,000 pages. And then wow. I want to say there was, uh, we also got a thumb drive of all the images too. Um, I didn't look at those uh, afterwards, but there was, I think there was over 7,000 images too. Wow. Uh, taken by CSI and everybody else. Um, a couple of videos and stuff like that. And yeah, it was a lot. It was a lot. Yeah. Um, before we get into the, the, the book, I had a question for you. <laughs> it kind of, it didn't bother me. It, I, it piqued my interest. Like, Oh, wait a second. Um, I think it was in the prologue. You mentioned when you went to the Academy, it was like a three week process till you actually started. Yeah. Uh, I, I don't know if it was lucky timing if they needed somebody for the pig bowl, I'm not sure. <laughs> I, and, and, and honestly, I, I didn't do, unlike a lot of people, I didn't do any research. I didn't have family in law enforcement. I never even thought about it. I was, I graduated from Sac State, had a degree in psychology, just finished playing college football and was bartending. Had no idea what I want to do with my life. And one of my football buddies was in Sac Sheriff Academy and he's like, Hey, have you ever thought about it? And I'm like, no, not really. He's like, yeah, I hear they're trying to fill their extended night one, which is the 10 month kind of part-time one while you're still finishing up stuff, um, which I didn't know which one I was even applying to. I didn't know there was a night. I didn't know there was a day. I didn't know you could be affiliated. So I filled it all out and they're like, yeah, can you come in next week and do the physical, the written and the oral all in the same weekend? Wow. And I was like, uh, sure. I thought that was normal. Uh, <laughs> so I went in and did all that. And I want to say within a week or two, I, you know, got my letter and got my stuff and was standing in the, was starting the Academy. It was really quick. Um, like I said, I think they were trying to fill some spots or desperate. I don't know, but it worked out for me. And then by the time the 10 months was over, I actually ended up of uh, the, um, I think we had uh, like 50 or something that started and there was like 27, 30 of us that finished and there was four of us, they picked up full time. And I, I got I, lucky enough to be one of them. So yeah. Man. 
it's definitely not like that anymore. <laughs> no, I think it, I think it took me like a year, a little over a year from start to finish to find out that I, I got the spot. And then Academy was like another four months or something like that. Yeah. The Academy itself was 10 months long um, just because of the extended and our regular one six. Uh, but yeah. And I know it's gone in waves. I know people that it took a long time and then, I mean, shoot right now, I think every law enforcement agency all over the country is short. And yeah. we actually used to hold three academies a year. And I think we're down to two because we didn't have enough qualified applicants, any people that pass the background, that kind of stuff to fill them. Cause we're not, you know, some people are choosing another profession. So yeah, right. now might be a good time, I guess, if you're interested, because I know a lot of places are really short staffed. Our department last I heard was down a hundred something, hundred deputies, something like that. And then sergeants and we're having retirements all over the place, you know, pretty quick. So. Yeah. I know like for, cause I, I did a very, very short stint at El Dorado County. And I think my background was, what was that Wilson? Like a year or something. Yeah, and they tell least. you, they say, they say, don't call and bug us and ask us, but I'm sitting there like looking at my phone. I'm like, okay, call, call. And finally I get the call. Then it's like, oh, by the way, you're going to meet the sheriff and you have your final interview. I'm all, oh, that's not nerve wracking at all. Yeah. I think part of the way it was quick was because they don't do a full background for to get in like that because we're not paid. And so we're not hired or anything like that. And they continue to do the full background packet while you're in the Academy. Oh, okay. oh that makes sense. So they just did the initial like, Hey, I'm not a felon and some of that stuff. Um, but the actual packet to, you know, they talk to your family and work history and all that stuff. You felt, I actually filled out and they finished it up while I was going to the Academy. So before they got hired full time, they finished that one. Okay. I don't know if they still do it that way, but that's how they did it for that one um, at that time. I know yeah. all the affiliates, like the paid ones, they go through the full thing before um, and your agencies all m- might do affiliate. Everybody's affiliated. I'm not sure, you know, paid while you're going through the Academy, but um, we have a little bit of both. And at the time I was paying my own way. And um, so then they finished it while we were going. Yeah. I think out here is, it's different because uh, we have our state police um, and then we have our County and PD but right. our county jails aren't county jails. They're regional jails. So basically the in, not the inmates, the COs are basically like, they're just like guards. They don't yeah. have, they don't, they're not affiliated with any sort of sheriff's department or police department. I'm like, that's, that's kind of strange to me because I'm not used to that, but it works, but you know, it's just different, different area. Yeah. Yeah. Probably saves them a lot of money too. I know our department has, gone back and forth of trying to get co as a clada as a status to save money in the jails instead of full you know full-time full-fledged deputies um but it hasn't happened i'm not sure what the why but and i know I, some agencies do have that though i think yeah. class does say uh, you guys do or don't Colorado does yeah well scott you have an amazing story um and i know that it's uh i i've heard it um many i've i've, I've maybe have listen to every interview and watched every interview you've been on so far. <laughs> um, and you know, the story doesn't, uh, how do I say it? It still hits as hard. Um, but your story is very inspiring, but it, it takes a tragedy to get there, which oh, is, definitely. which is, um, which is hard to take. Um, but, um, if you wouldn't mind, um, could you just tell us the, the story of basically about what happened that day and, and just the whole process of, um, wh- how you got to where you're at now with releasing this book? Um, cause I m- imagine that couldn't have been easy either. Cause you have to relive it and even talking about it like this, I'm having to relive it as well. 
Yeah. So, I mean, as far as that goes, um, yes and no. I mean, it was hard to write the book, but it was therapeutic for me too. Um, you know, as cops, we tend to not like holes, you know, not misinformation or having holes in our, our memory or, or what we know, you know, that kind of thing. And for me, there was a lot, I mean, that day was chaotic and it spanned such a wide area from SAC all the way up to El Dorado and Placer. And just, I mean, it went everywhere. Right. And so there was a lot of holes in the story and it killed me not knowing some of them. And so through the process of this book and interviews, um, I was able to fill a lot of those holes and, um, it actually started as therapy. I don't some people, I don't remember if I put that in there or not, but, um, the book started out as a journal, um, when I wasn't sleeping and I had a couple other, um, you know, post-trauma type symptoms, uh, my therapist said, Hey, you should start a journal. And I'm like, I don't, I don't do diaries. And she's like, well, <laughs> buy something with leather on it and call it a journal. You'd be fine. And so I mentioned it to my wife. And of course she went overboard and bought me like three, like big old giant things. And I just started writing down the story and it actually helped almost right away with at least sleeping a little bit. Cause there was this whole uh, description from my, uh, my therapist about, you know, storing memories. And once you write them down, it moves them from a different part of the brain. And it realizes that it doesn't have to relive them because it, it now knows that you have a place where you can recall it if you need to kind of thing. That's the, the down and dumb version of it, but that was, and it, and you know, I'm thinking I'll try anything at this point. And so I did it and it helped big time. Um, and then I kept doing it, kept doing it. And then, like I said, the idea of the book came up a couple of times and I dismissed it because I'm a knuckle jagged Neanderthal that wouldn't even know where to begin. <laughs> and then finally, uh, through some other stuff, Vicky, uh, my friend Vicky was like, well, I'll help you. And I've written a couple of books. And I'm like, well, looked up to the Lord and I said, well, I'm out of excuses. Let's give it a shot. And um, this was before the trial. So I kept doing the journal uh, through the trial. And then we really started kicking it into gear afterwards and doing all the interviews and stuff like that. Um, but I find that it is hard to talk about, but, um, it, it helps me. Like if I don't, uh, kind of unload or talk about it for an extended period of time, which kind of happened over COVID, uh, some of our speaking engagements and stuff got canceled, this, that, and the other thing. And I found myself getting irritable and, and a little angrier and kind of reverting back to some of the other stuff because I, I wasn't unloading it. Right. I wasn't right. letting it go. And, um, and doing some good. I feel like when we do speak at these cops conferences or, you know, writing the book or the, or this kind of stuff, we always get great feedback that we're helping people. And, um, that's kind of, that was the whole point of this. And, and I feel like if I, if I don't do something like that, then not only did Danny die for nothing and Mike, um, I'm doing them a disservice. I'm dishonoring them and their families and everything else by just sitting on it. Right. And so that was kind of where this all went with that. Um, so that's kind of some of, you know, the, 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 the little spiel about writing it and, uh, um, how it makes me feel, but, um, it's exhausting a little bit, um, bet. <laughs> but, um, yeah, as far as that day goes, um, I mean, there's a lot to it and obviously I'm, I'm not going to be able to go through the whole thing, but right. kind of why I have the book it's there's, I always tell people, if you knew about some of that day or you never even heard about it. Once you're done, you shouldn't have very many questions. And if exactly. you do, it's probably because we didn't get the answer that we were looking for either. Um, it's very thorough. And it wasn't necessarily about documenting the story because it, it was. I mean, we want to be accurate with it and honor Mike and Danny's death. But we knew we had to be accurate and detailed with the story to kind of set the stage for everything that happened afterwards. And, uh, and I didn't want it to be off or wrong in any way. So we made sure we checked with everybody before we even started. I got permission from the Olivers and the Davises. 
Um, and to, to the best of my knowledge, between my, my memory, all the interviews, the crime report and everything, everything is completely accurate in here as well. Um, but yeah, so Danny and I knew each other for probably a good 10 years before he was killed. Um, you know, we came up together, graveyard shift. There was a crew of us that's, you know, all worked at the, from 10 at night to late in the morning, causing all sorts of trouble in the middle of the night here in Sacramento. And, uh, you know, rest, a lot of people went on, you know, vacations together and, you know, helped each other move all sorts of stuff. Right. Um, and then at one point, Danny had made it over to the pop team and I was, uh, and that's problem oriented policing team. And it's kind of the Swiss army knife of the department. We did everything from community events, you know, barbecues and stuff, coffee with a cop to, undercover by bus, John stings, extra bodies for our SWAT team when they're hitting a door, um, high impact sweeps in the really bad areas, all that kind of stuff. And our six man team averaged at the time when felonies were still felonies. Um, we averaged anywhere from 50 to 70 felony arrests a month. I mean, we wow. were tearing it up, man. Um, but uh, so he was on the pop team and uh, I was still on graveyard and he hit me up. Dude, you got to come over here. You got to come over here. You got to come over here. And finally, he broke me down. I like night times because there was no administration out. You could chase people till your wheels fell off, that kind of thing. Uh, <laughs> so I wasn't really looking to leave. Um, but he was like, no, you got to come. This team's awesome. You won't realize how bad you felt on graveyard till you're sleeping through the night and you're on days. And he was right. I was there about a month. All of a sudden, I'm like, oh, my God, I feel amazing. <laughs> Didn't realize I'd been a zombie for like seven, eight years. Uh, so he got me over there and um, we were good. We were tearing it up, like I said, doing all that stuff. Um, and then uh, on October 24th, 2014, at 1020 in the morning, we'd helped out parole, um, kick in a door in a neighborhood where you don't go with unless you got like five cop cars and, you know, you kind of scare them a little bit. Took her to jail or the female parolee to jail, ad booked her for some animal cruelty charges, uh, dropped a warrant off at the DA's office. And then we were heading back into town and there used to be a Motel 6 at Ethan and Arden in the Sacramento area. And it was like most motel six, it was a shithole um, for lack of better terms. I mean, it was one of those places you don't go unless you're really desperate or looking for bad stuff. So we went there a lot looking for bad stuff because there was always guns and dope and hookers and stuff and always kind of on this back area of the hotel. So we're getting off the freeway and he suggests the motel six. And I said, yeah, of course um, he's driving. I'm passenger because he was an EVOC instructor, drove like a maniac, but never got in an accident. He was actually very impressive. Um, but he was also a little shorter, a little squattier than me. And so I was kind of the runner and it worked out really well. Um, so we pull into the motel, we come around and we go to the backside and the backside of the hotel was kind of one of those secluded places, a cinder block wall on one side, no cameras, no security. So that's where most of the dirt happened. Um, I mean, we'd arrested a guy with a Mac 45 underneath his shirt about a month before in the same exact spot. So we pull back there and Danny puts it in park and he says, Hey, there's two in the car. I look up cause I was looking on the computer and I see a uh, Mercury marquee sitting there with the trunk open. And I can't, I mean, I can see a body in the driver's seat. I don't see a second person, but you know, I mean, statistically they're going to be on the passenger side and I believed him cause he, he knew what he was talking about. So we pop out and he starts towards the driver's side and I kind of make a wide kind of half circle heading to the passenger side. Cause I hadn't seen somebody yet and was trying to get a good view of them. Um, finally, I see the female standing by the back passenger door, big girl. Um, she's staring at Danny and I'm trying to get her attention and she's not listening to me. And finally, I use my big boy voice with some, you know, some street words that uh, <laughs> attention. Uh, for, <laughs> you laugh because you know exactly what I'm talking about. Uh, 
she turns and looks at me and she has this look on her face of like kind of surprise and like confusion and not what I was expecting from her. Right. And, uh, the trunk and I see her like put her hand on the trunk and she slowly shuts it. And I'm like, in my like lights are going off. I'm like, that's a clue. We got to get in that trunk. There's something good in there, but let's get this scene taken care of. Right. And I didn't hear anything from the driver's side at this point. Right. It sound, I mean, he's, he's, he's dealing with him. I'm dealing with her. Um, and she's just like really zoned out and I'm like, man, she is tweaking or stoned or something. So finally she's kind of cr- like crammed in the open door, like by the seat and her, she's facing me. So I said, Hey, sit down. So she sits her butt. And so as soon as her butt hit that seat, that's when I hear about six shots come from the driver's side of the door or driver's side of the car. Uh, obviously I immediately divert my attention over there and I don't see Danny anywhere. And he's, he was a shorter guy, but he wasn't that short. And I should have you know, if he was up, he would have been standing there and I would have seen him. Um, so I start, you know, back a step backing up. I'm starting to draw. And before I can even get my gun out, a uh, suspect pops up uh, from the driver's side, levels the gun over the top of the car and starts firing at me. Uh, I want to say he got I want to say the report said nine rounds is what they figured. He, he got off at me and I'm still like right by the back corner of the trunk. We're not that far away. I'd say maybe 10 feet. And I could feel him going by my neck, my ears. Um, I mean, he wasn't missing me by much. And I'm 6'2", 230-ish, probably more. Um, you know, and then all your gear on. I was pretty good-sized target, and I don't – he missed me. Um, and uh, Amazing. Yeah, yeah, definitely the Lord. My guardian angel was tired that day, I'll tell you. Yeah. Um, so I, you know, finished drawing. I start returning fire. He ducks down. So I start feeding rounds through the back window, roughly to where I think he would be, you know, the angle of the car. And I know he's by the driver's side. Um, uh, fire off 16 rounds. And then I decide I'm going to, you know, start sidestepping and seeing if I can see Danny and see him. And before and I completely ignored her at this point, I mean, she didn't even exist. And she actually had a gun in her purse. She could have pulled it out and shot me through the door. And I would have never even seen it coming. Um, cause I was so focused on him. Um, she just ended up just kind of cowering in the back seat, trying not to get hit by our exchange of fire. Anyway, before I could even take about one step to, to go get a look at what was going on, I see the front post of an AR come up from the, uh, the car. And, uh, I recognized it immediately cause it was the same a frame in my AR, which unfortunately was in the trunk of our car, which was way too far away to get to. Um, that's when, bunch of revelations i'm standing in the middle of the parking lot i got three rounds left with a nine millimeter he's got a rifle i've got no cover around me right now um so i beat feet i don't know i think it was about eight or nine car lengths um down the parking lot and take cover behind a wheel well um get some radio traffic out shots fired officer down um trying to get some descriptions out and that's when i hear a single shot from the area back where everything happened and I remember in my mind thinking he just executed Danny because I'd seen enough of those videos where the suspect shoots and then comes up and finishes him off. Um, it's not what happened uh, per CSI later. Um, we don't know where that one shot, whether he finally got up and shot at me, but I was behind cover um, or whether it was an AD from him or I don't know, but it wasn't what I thought it was um, based on forensic evidence. Um but also, and then all of a sudden, you know, everything else, survival mode started kicking in. I'm like, crap, I got this guy out there. I don't know where he's at now. Um, I need to come up with a plan. And I knew the hotel like the back of my hand. So I came up with a plan to 
cross a breezeway into the interior, come around on him and see if I could get him from behind. Um, so I started to do that. And as I was crossing the breezeway, I saw the back, the car start to back up. And, uh, so I changed my, my tactic and went start running at the car thinking I was going to get some more rounds in there trying to stop him. Um, as he backed up and pulled forward, the car bounced like it went over a curb. Um, but there were no curbs there. And I knew right away that he'd run over Danny. Um, and that threw me off. I didn't, and I, by the time my brain mentally recovered, um, and I got my gun back up, he'd rounded the corner cause it was right on the corner of the building and he was gone. And I remember thinking, shit, now we got another deputy Mitchell. Cause one of our officers was killed down in our Delta area and there's still out the suspect still, still not still at large. We think we know who he is. We think we know where he's at, but he's in another country and we can't get him kind of thing. Um, and that was the first thought that came into my mind. Um, well, I kept running, um, finally cleared the last car. And that's when I finally saw Danny, um, uh, on his back and gun and holster and a hole in his forehead. Um, a lot of other stuff I'm not going to describe, but, um, uh, it was bad. And I knew immediately I'd seen enough. I'd been around for 13 years at this point, seen plenty of dead bodies. Um, and once I got close to him and, you know, the look in his eyes and some other stuff, I knew he was gone, but you know, you do what you can, you call it out. You, I yelled for people to stay inside because they were all out on the balcony. I heard some lady scream, that kind of thing. I guess they were filming some of it. Um, and then, you know, then get back on the radio. I was trying to get radio traffic out thinking I got to make sure that he doesn't go get somebody else. And, um, and then I remember getting pulled off of Danny and then thrown in a car. Um, I don't know if it's ironic or sad, but the first person on the scene that pulled me off of Danny was Bob French. Um, another one of my friends who was then killed at a motel, uh, by an assault rifle less than two miles down the road, a couple of years later. Um, I actually have pictures of me when Bob in DC, putting Danny's name on the wall. And then a couple of years later, I'm in DC again, putting Bobby's name on the wall. Um, so they threw me in the car. Um, I tried to call my wife. Eventually she calls me back and all I can say is I'm okay. Um, cause I'm in shock and crying and just not knowing what to do with myself. Probably couldn't even spell my name at the time. Um, they end up taking me to our detective division. Um, unfortunately that's not where the suspect ended either. Um, I'll kind of branch off to the rest of his day right now. Um, he continued on, went, uh, about a mile and a half down the road, went to a cul-de-sac, uh, came across to, um, a guy and I can't use his name cause he didn't give me permission. Um, but uh, we've had some conversations anyway, a streetwise individual who uh, he walked up to him and said, give me your car. And he said, I don't know you. I ain't giving you my car. And he, the suspect smiled, tilted his head and then shot him six times, uh, a couple in the face and a couple in the arms. Cause he got his arm up to defend himself. Um, he lived, thank God. Um, and then he went basically across the way, carjacked a female for her Mustang, um, transferred all the guns and then took off in that. Went into Carmichael, uh, tried to carjack a landscaper, but they claimed they didn't have the keys to the car that was out there. It was their bosses. The keys were in the car. They were lying to him, but he took off, found another landscaper, um, stole his car, but actually took the time to help him remove his trailer because um, the they, they were speaking Spanish together. And uh, they I said, hey, take the car, but this is my livelihood. You know, can we keep the trailer? And he took the time to help. He actually helped them lift it off and everything. Um, and then he said, don't call the cops. And of course they did as soon as he left. 
got on the freeway, was heading up uh, 80 towards Auburn, um, sees the blue alert on one of the signs, or his wife does, sees the license plate. She says, hey, that's our car. So they dive off uh, the freeway in Auburn, not knowing where they're at, get lost up in the hills. Um, turns out they, just, they decided they need to get rid of the plate on that car, so they're going to switch it out or take it off. And uh, they pull in front of a house. Turns out they pulled in front of a house of a retired CHP officer that was sitting on his fr- in his front room with the window open, listening to KFBK, who was describing the scene and the suspect. And now he looks out his window and sees him taking the plates off. So, of course, he calls um, Auburn and, and Placer. Uh, they start heading to the area. He takes off from in front of that house, doesn't make it very far, and gets contacted by... Um, Placer County sheriffs who don't even, they don't even get the car in park and he's unloading on them with his AR. They bail out. The car rolls forward, runs into their car. He jumps in the patrol car and takes off leaving his wife behind um, who eventually got taken into custody at that scene. Well, he takes off and the radio traffic up there because it's the Hills and everything else um, sucks. And they kind of, you know, they're all excited. So some of them are stepping over each other a little bit. Um, so Mike Davis and his partner, uh, Mike Simmons were coming in and they, they thought they heard pursuit. They heard that they heard some shots, but that they didn't really, nobody, he didn't get the traffic out that he was in a patrol car. So they see the car go by and they think it's one of their guys in pursuit. So they jump in behind it, follow it. It goes into a cul-de-sac and that car goes into a driveway of a house. They pull up and stop and they get out and they're looking, they immediately hear gunshots, but they're not looking at the patrol car because they think it's one of their guys shooting at the suspect. Um, by the time they oriented themselves and figured out where the shots were coming from, um, Mike Davis took a, a rifle round through the chest um, and, and died very shortly afterwards. And then uh, another deputy, um, another Mike, um, took a, a frag round through his uh, hand forearm area. Um, and then Brock Monas, or the suspect, I hate using his name, uh, he took off down a hill, around a hill, and then up into a house where the owner saw him, popped out. Uh, called and then uh, ended up, you know, surround every SWAT team in the area, helicopters stacked up um, and they pumped enough gas in there to kill a small army. And he eventually came out crawling on his back um, and they cuffed him up. He had Raven's house looking for a gun, which he found one, but didn't know what to do with it. Um, Took a dump on the carpet, turned on all the gas, trying to get uh, if they if they came in, he was hoping to blow everybody up kind of thing. Um, wrote a goodbye note to his lady who he thought she was, she was dead. Um, cause he just assumed we killed her. Um, but unlike him, we are the good guys. They're the bad guys. And both of them made it, um, you know, despite my hopes and dreams, I guess. Um, and while all that was going on, I was at our detective division and I was getting updates either by listening to other people cause they're all working it right. They're still trying to find the guy. And, um, I mean, you want to talk about, guilt survivor's guilt whatever you want to call it i mean i already felt it huge just at that moment and then it weighed as i went on with danny because he was my partner right i was supposed to keep him safe we were watching each other's backs and then and in my mind there was something i missed there was something i didn't do there was something that i could have done it was my fault somehow right and then i mean when i heard about homes i was like okay i might as well have shot that guy because i should have taken care of the bad guy in the parking lot. He should have never left that parking lot. I should have stayed in the fight when I saw the AR. All this stuff was going through my mind. Now, now, seven, almost eight years later, and a lot of, you know, therapy and counseling and some other stuff, I've 
realized that, you know, I worked with what I had. There wasn't, if I, yeah, maybe I could have stayed in the fight, but we probably would have gone to three funerals instead of two because a handgun with three rounds versus an AR with 30 is not a fair fight. Um, and so, and he had a car as cover. I had nothing. So, I mean, I can, every once in a while that what if still pops in my head, but you know, I, I'm, I'm not psychic. I'm not God. And, you know, I did with what I had, but at the time that didn't matter to me. Right. Um, and then as soon as I heard about Mike Davis, I mean, I was destroyed even more just because, like I said, I, I felt like I might as well have driven up to plaster and shot him myself. Um, talking with his partner down the road afterwards and, and whatnot, um, you know, he helped me out with that. Cause he was, you know, he's all the dude, if it had happened in Placer and he was driving in a sack, what would you and Danny have done? And I said the exact same thing. He said, yeah. So don't take that away from him. You know, it's, it is what it is. He's all, it sucks. Um, but he was, he was, you know, if he'd, if he'd have been mad at me or hated me, I would have, you know, I mean, obviously the guilt would have just confounded, compounded even more. Um, but luckily when I did have a chance to talk to him about a week later, um, you know, he was just, he's all, man, we just, it sucks. And now we got something in common and him and I are actually good friends now. He's actually in Tennessee, but, um, yeah, we've become good friends since then. And then, yeah, just after that, it was the rest of the day, you know, anybody that's been involved in a shoot, um, you know, they, they come and they photograph you and, you know, take your gun and switch it out. And then you got to go walk the scene again and, you know, do your interview with the detectives and uh, your lawyers all come and all that other good stuff. And this was my third shooting, but, um, so luckily I had the, I guess, practice of all those procedures. Um, so those weren't new to me, which was good. So I, I, that part didn't throw me off, but obviously the, the, the feeling of it and everything around it was totally different this time. Um, so obviously having to return to the scene was devastating. And, and then while I'm doing all this, my wife was just amazing. She came to the scene, got the kids taken care of and came to the hospital. I mean, at the, not the hospital, but, um, the detective division and then ended up going to the airport because Danny's wife was in San Diego and they were flying her up from San Diego and realized that nobody knew what she looked like. Um, so my wife went there and met her off the plane and then rode in the car with her to the coroner's office and then to identify him and then ended up coming back to me and just, I mean, she did so much and still continues. Um, it was, it was amazing. And then having to get the call cause she knew Danny. I mean, we were all friends and just went on vacation with him. Like, I don't know, about a month before, you know, in their trailer and kids call him Uncle Danny and everything else. So not only dealing with the trauma of, you know, losing a friend as well, um, almost losing me. And then she had her own survivor's guilt as a, as a friend and a spouse and, a, and everything else. She, you know, I mean, she every time she saw Sue and even continues a little bit, it's like, hey, I have Scott and you don't have Dan. I mean, how does she feel about that? Right. Like she, she has a hard time with it. Um, and then, yeah, it was just after that, it was just a thing, everything, one thing after another, you know, funerals, I went to both of them because there's no way I was going to miss Mike's, um, you know, uh, transferring them from the coroner's office to the, um, you know, the funeral home, like I said, the services, and then a bunch of memorials afterwards, benches and signs and plaques and all this other stuff. And I, I just felt like I had to be there. I don't, you know, I it was killing myself going all these, but. I just felt like I had to represent and I probably was doing myself a little bit of a disservice, but um, I went to all of them um, and dealing with all my own guilt and you know, my stomach hurt. My muscles were tense. I was losing weight cause I was, I wasn't eating and I was throwing up and then I was working out and, and uh, um, 
you know, luckily I was able to stay away from drinking too much, which was good. Cause I kind of told myself that right away. Um, but you know, I was angry at everything. I would, I know over the next three or four years, I treated my wife and kids, you know, like crap. I had no, I had a temper. I had no patience. Um, it never got physical, but I, I, you know, I'm sure I was, you know, verbally and, and just aloof and, you know, the dad that was there wasn't there anymore kind of thing. Um, and then, you know, fast forward, I had three and a half years to think about a trial and that's all I thought about. I mean, I was focused. That was, that was my whole life revolved around what's going to happen next. Where am I going? What's he appealing for? What's the, you know, is he going to get a change of venue? Are they going to let him do with the insanity and all this other stuff? Right. Um, and then when it finally came around, um, I had this feeling that the whole trial was on my shoulders, right? If I jacked it up, he's going to walk free. Um, and I testified a ton. I mean, I lived in court and I was a detective by this point. And so I was there all the time. And, um, you know, I was one of those guys that didn't mind testifying, but this one just, you know, sitting in front of him again and doing all this. And, um, turns out that, I mean, I could have gone up there and laid a complete egg. They had so much evidence and all this other stuff that it really didn't matter what I said per se, but you know, I still had to go do my part. And then his antics during the trial were something I'd never most Most people have never seen. Usually you get stuff like this and they might, you know, smile or say something stupid or just sit there. And usually they're just quiet. Right. Um, he's sitting up there laughing, telling me that I'm a coward, that do I want to know what Danny said right before he died, that I killed him. Um, he wished he'd have killed more cops. I mean, just ton of stuff. Right. Um, and he did it every day. He was in court. Um, he did it with the transport guys from um, El Dorado back to SAC every day. He'd be like, hey, the cartel's coming for you and your family. That car right there, you know, blah, blah, blah. Just totally trying to mess with them. Uh, luckily, even though we live in the People's Republic of California, we got what we wanted. Um, you know, he got uh, guilty on all charges. He ended up getting the death penalty twice, which uh, one for Mike, one for Danny, which I'm hoping means they kill him, bring him back to life and kill him again. But it's California. So I'll probably actually die before he does. And he'll probably die of old age. Um, and then he got three um, life sentences, one for attempted murder on me, um, Placer, and then the other civilian that he shot. And then another 300 and something plus years for all the extra crap. So he's not going anywhere. And then as soon as he was done, he was in San Quentin, which is where he'll spend the rest of his life. And then his old lady, she got, uh, I want to say 70 something years for her part in it. Um, she is, she will be eligible for parole at some point, but I want to say she's going to be in her late seventies by the time she's even eligible. Um, so I don't know, I'll be gone by then. So I'm not real too worried about it. Um, but like I said, my goal in that trial was just to make sure he didn't get out to hurt anybody else. Cause I knew the reality of it. You know, he's not the death sentence doesn't mean death sentence in California. Um, and I can tell you, I'd had people warn me. They said, verdict doesn't give you the justice that you think it would. And I, I kind of had that sense anyway. And then they were absolutely right when, you know, when it was all over, all of a sudden I'm sitting there and I'm like, okay, I don't, I don't feel any different. And now the only difference is, is that's all I've thought about for the last three and a half years. And now I don't even have that. And that's kind of where some of my spiraling kind of came into effect. Cause I was holding myself together so much, um, just little stupid stuff here and there, but, um, you know, started making mistakes at work, forgetting things and, you know, that kind of little stuff, nothing major, but it was, an, it was enough to get noticed, um, you know, and, and, and that not, and then same thing with the, with my wife um, at one point, I mean, we, 
you know, we, we, we came pretty close to where it was like, Hey, uh, you know, you're, you're not being very nice to me. You're treating me like crap and I can't keep doing this. So, you know, maybe you should go stay somewhere else for a little while. And that was enough to kind of wake me up and, and, uh, change my ways. Um, you know, we, we did everything we could to keep it going, you know, therapy and, um, you know, the, the things that probably saved me in our marriage was, um, you know, we already had a good, good base. Anyway, we had good family close that kept us in check. Um, our faith was huge. Um, you know, we went to, we went to church a lot before and we really, you know, it was a kind of rekindling of my face, wake up faith, wake up call kind of thing. Um, and, uh, that saved us big time. Um, and then therapy, uh, my department was very good with me. Um, you know, Susan was very supportive, Danny's widow, and even Jessica, Mike, I got to know her a little bit, um, all that stuff. And it was kind of a combination of everything and my willingness to, you know, if somebody suggested something, um, that they said might help me unless it was, you know, really, really weird, um, or illegal. I was like, yeah, sure. I'll, you know, I'll give it a try. Even if it's out of my comfort zone, even if it's something that I'm not used to, uh, I can't afford to not have, not, not come back from this, you know, with the wife and three kids, it's not really an option. And so I kind of put myself at the mercy of good suggestions and some of them worked, some of them didn't, but I was willing to try them at least. So that's, you know, and then, and then at a certain point I decided I was feeling good enough to start making something good out of this. And like I said, that's when we, we really started diving into the book. That's when I joined our peer support at, at uh, our department and being out there to help guys through other traumas. Um, started the Danny Oliver foundation with Susan to, we gave, we give uh, scholarships to recruits in both Mike and Danny's name. Um, we started speaking for an organization called cops, which is concerns of police survivors and they deal with line of duty deaths all over the country. And so they put on a three-day class uh, called the traumas of law enforcement about nine, 10 times a year at, all over the country. Like we're going to Tampa, I think in August, uh, we went to Tennessee here a couple months ago. Um, it's actually coming here to Sacramento here next month. And so we speak on one of the days for a couple hours on those, um, just about kind of what I'm talking about here. And uh, been getting some great feedback, just guys saying, you know, appreciate me being open and honest. Now they don't feel alone. Like, you know, they felt like they were going crazy with some of their thoughts and feelings. And I'm just like, no, it's normal, man. And I think part of it is just knowing that a lot of guys just need to know that they're not crazy or they're not abnormal for feeling tired or angry or not wanting to be around people or like stomach issues or night nightmares or whatever it is you know, you're not crazy and you're not necessarily PTSD either. You're, you have PTSI, which is post-traumatic, you know, stress injury or just post-traumatic stress symptoms. Um, a lot of people have had those and they immediately think PTSD. It's like, no, if it persists over like a couple of years. Yeah. But you know, you're going to have these, they're normal. And it's like, uh, a stig it's like a stigma people put on it. They don't want to admit uh, it big time. And a lot of them don't want to get help because they feel like there's a stigma on that too. And so um, that's, a, I'm, like I said, that's one of the reasons I'm very open about going and getting help. And I still do once in a while we go check in my wife and I, and it keeps us healthy. And, um, you know, I know every department's different. I know area, every area is different, but I have never seen, um, or felt like I had any negative repercussions for making myself healthy. Yeah. And, and I, I mean, unfortunately, I mean, since, you know, like you, you mentioned, uh, Bob French, um, I can't remember the order, but you know, we had, um, Mark Stasiuk, um, and then Adam Gibson, and even other departments close by, you know, you had Natalie Corona, Tara Sullivan, you know, 
So it's and like Brian you said, Ishmael, like oh, and- Brian Ishmael, I can't forget him. Yeah, that was you know, that was the department I worked for. Uh and you you mentioned like how you went to Michael Davis's funeral and you guys all come together. And I know like even I, I that was another thing in the book too. Uh, like you, I think you mentioned something about the the first uh, chase you got to do. I think it was the first shooting or whatever. CHP oh, yeah. wanted no help or whatever, and I was like, I, I felt like that was kind of like one of those backhanded things for CHP. Like, oh, CHP is not requesting any help. It, it's like firefighters and police. Kind of, we all make fun of each other, but we kind of, you know, we're on the same team, right? Um, and then I, I've seen like when because I think uh, one of the first because we do a beers and cheers thing on our show. So really anytime any local law enforcement or firefighter um, in the Sacramento area, or even in West Virginia, because we've had one out here since I've been here, uh, we dedicate the show to them basically. And uh, when I was at the Taro Sullivan, uh, uh, it was at what Wilson, what was the brewery again? I can never remember the brewery I was at. I think it was track seven, track seven. And I was standing in line. I was just there as just a normal guy I, have, I brought my daughter with me just to buy a beer for wilson for the show so we could talk about it and just seeing everyone come together and 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 i wasn't even participating in any stories i was listening dispatchers hearing everyone over here from different departments and then some guy from like la came up you know and i'm like man this is crazy like how they come together and so i you mentioned how you know you're on a peer support team um is that is that kind of more or less like you know, chaplaincy in a way? Uh, our, with our department, they're definitely uh, tied to our chaplaincy, but basically all it is, and and there's there's classes you take. So I took a week-long class and got certified on peer support. And it kind of just talks you about, you know, how to approach somebody and how to talk to them and not, you know, you try to let them talk with you, you know, and you don't necessarily share your stories and they go through a whole bunch of stuff. Um, but yeah, it basically what it is, is just, you know, a lot of, some people won't talk to a chaplain because they think religion, right? And some people won't talk to, you know, the shrink because they think it's going to, you know, have an effect on them, but they'll talk to somebody that appear, you know, somebody that's been there and in a similar situation. And um, I I say it's, it's nice because our department has a pretty good size one, I think 50, 50 something active members. And it gives you a wide range, right? So like, if you have an issue that that you want to talk about, but you don't necessarily want to go some big route and say you're working the inner loop at our jail and you're doing records, right? you're probably not going to come to me because I'm not going to understand any of what you're talking about. I'm going to have a hard time being empathetic because I just don't understand it. Right. But we have records officers that are on our peer support team and you can see where they're working and what they do. And you'll go talk to one of them. Right. Yeah. Well, for me, there wasn't a lot of guys still working and definitely wasn't really many on our peer support that had been through anything even close to what I had been through. Not that we hadn't lost people, but just they hadn't gone the route of peer support. Right. And so I wanted to be there for those people afterwards. And so when I did, it was before, it was before Bobby, it was right before Bobby, when I got certified and Bobby was kind of my generation of guy and I knew him and we all kind of worked the North area. And so after Bobby was killed, man, my phone blew up because these guys are like, I got to talk to Scott because he knows. Right. And then uh, Mark was the next one and he, completely different generation of cop, right? Young guy. Um, I never, I'd only met him. I think like once in a briefing when I was, uh, detective and I was helping them with a bike, a bike thing down in Rancho Cordova. Um, but I talked to several Academy classes since then and stuff like that. So these guys knew who I was. And so I got a lot of calls after Mark from guys I didn't know, but because they knew I'd been there. And then with Adam kind of similar things, because I started doing all the debriefs that they're doing as well. 
And so I was in those and, and, you know, introduced myself and, and told them that I was available afterwards. And again, because we had this similar experience and they knew they didn't have to explain certain things with me, they could just kind of sit there or say the minimum and I could fairly accurately fill in some of the gaps. Um, it was nice to be there for those guys because I could help them walk through it or they'd call me months later. Hey dude, is this normal? Yeah, dude, you're, you're good. Um, you know, and, and you'll get through it. I promise kind of thing. So, yeah, I, I like hearing that. Cause I know like one of my biggest things is when like, cause when, when I lost my dad a while back and uh, the person who I reached out to was the person who also lost their dad and that helped me through it. And so I noticed that right after that, when I had other friends lose their dads, they came to me. I was like, Whoa, like, I'm not, the, I'm not a professional, you know, yeah. but I, I could tell you kind of what you're going through is normal and it'll always be there. So that, that's a good thing that, you know, you're on the peer support team and stuff. Cause I am, me and Wilson were talking um, about the book and we said like this, this book, even though I'm not in law enforcement, I, it's helping me, you know, uh, being able to, you know, I don't want to say I've I haven't had trauma, you know, obviously, uh, but like just there's things that are hard for me, you know, and there's things that I'm like, man, okay, I can see where he's coming through on that. I could talk to my wife about this and I could, you know, openly share it, you know, and even openly share it about even on the podcast, even, which is very therapeutic. And you mentioned that after the court trial, that there, that, that was it. It was like, okay, well, it sh I should be feeling good, but you're not, you're, this is it. But then what took that place is you transferred that to the book. And then now you're doing all these public speaking engagements, which is helping so many people. So you've turned it into something good. Yeah. And, and that was the goal. I mean, we, we like the idea that, and when we wrote it, we wrote, I mean, obviously cops are, might get more out of it, but we wrote it as kind of a, a Hey, this is us, right? We're not, like you said, I'm not a professional. I'm not a therapist. Um, yeah. and, and I don't claim to be right. I say, this is what happened to me. And this is what worked for me. This is what didn't work for me. And it's more the idea of keeping an open mind as to maybe planting a seed for something. And, and like I said, we had a whole bunch of goals when we wrote it, it was, you know, help office specifically like any officer has been through trauma, whether it's a major incident or 20, 30 years of doing a career, you're going to come across, you know, the dead person or the family or the, the babies or whatever it is. Right. And those are traumatic events. And, and even for a civilian that's been through there's, they can be through plenty of traumatic events and, and it might people, a lot of people like to compare levels. There's no level. If it's traumatic for you, it's traumatic for you. Right. Um, and so we're hoping they could connect on that, but also for the, the non-cop population, just learn kind of a little bit more about us as cops. And that when we go home, we take this stuff with us. It doesn't, it's not like it just magically goes away because we leave the scene. It, it, it has a ripple effect in over a long period of time. Um, you know, so we had that. And then, you know, my faith is a huge aspect. And that was another reason why I was very adamant about keeping it in there was because when, you know, if you're one of those people that's lost and you feel like you got a, some, there's something missing, right? You don't know what it is, but there's something missing. Maybe they read that story and they're like, okay, now I know what I'm missing in my life. Um, you know, and marriages too, like for my wife and I, we want to, if we could, if we could help maybe one marriage through encouraging conversation or whatever it is, totally worth it. If one guy reads that book and he stays in his career because he's healthier, totally worth it. If somebody reads that book and instead of going down the road of depression and suck starting their gun, they go get help and they're still alive today, totally worth it. And if nobody else reads it, I'm, you know what, 
if just that one guy reads it, I'm okay with it. I'm not here to make money. And trust me, books ain't money. <laughs> Self-published actually costs quite a bit. I'm still I'm still in the hole at the moment. So. Neither are podcasts. <laughs> yeah, but worth, but worth it, right? You're we don't you don't do that to for you, right? You're you're hopefully helping somebody or giving them some good information or whatever it is, right? Right. Um, now you you mentioned the faith thing, and and Wilson and I were both uh, God fearing fellas, and when I was uh, when I because I remember being in Sacramento when this when this actually happened and I, I didn't know about you I didn't know any I should think during that time uh I was already done with my stint at El Dorado I believe this was 2014 correct yeah yeah so I was already done so I knew some people but not many and uh after that I had a a real big bout with God about uh basically about me like why did this not work out for me and like, what, what did I do wrong? And then I come to the conclusion years later that this wasn't what God wanted for me. I wasn't supposed to be in that profession because I fought it for, I think I tried getting in, I think it took me 13 or 15 tries and that's 13 or that's, that's 13 or 15 tries. God tell me this isn't for you, you know? Yeah. And so I didn't get the hint. Um, but you mentioned uh, being a man of faith and uh, during that incident the whole process uh was that challenged? Not really challenged, actually. And I and I know I know plenty of guys where it was, right? They they went the angry route of they were mad at God and why did this, you know, happen and stuff like that. Um, honestly, you know, once I recovered my faculties a little bit, um it's it it did nothing for me but strengthen my faith. Good. Um, which is kind of you know, I don't know if it's strange or not, but um and for several reasons, right? I mean, I grew up a Christian. I grew up going to church. Uh, my wife's a preacher's kid. My mom's a preacher's kid. Um, my grandpa was, a, you know, just the whole deal, right? And never really struggled with it, but I was never, like, I, I didn't, you know, I, w- I didn't pray in front of people. I didn't talk about it in front of people. I was, you know, kind of just there. I did went through the motions kind of thing. Well, after this, I realized that, you know, one, I, you don't have time to necessarily get right with the Lord. Right. I mean, it could happen in an instant. Right. Um, and one of those bullets that was whizzing by me, you know, hits me in the neck or the head and I'm, I'm out. Right. And I don't, you know, eternity's a long time to, to wish you'd made a different choice kind of thing. Um, and then just trying to, trying to find purpose in it a little bit. I mean, I, I guess I struggled with, you know, I know God saved me. Right. Cause I should have been dead in that parking lot. There's, and there's a hundred incidents probably prior to that, where I probably could have been taken out too. Um, but why? Right. And then, you know, I'd come up with my own reasons. And finally, I, I had to realize that, you know, why Danny and not me and, and this, that, and the other thing. And, and I had to just come to the realization, I'm not going to know the answer to that. Right. At least not here. Um, but I had to be okay with it. And whether I was saved simply to raise three boys, to be good men, cause we need a lot of good men in this world. Yeah. Right. That's enough. Right. Absolutely, if that's it, yeah. I'm okay with it. Um, I don't, I think there was more, I think it, this book and, and talking to people and, and becoming a, a voice of trying to help people out, I believe is why you did it. Cause I would have never, I mean, if you'd asked me prior to this, would you be on a podcast talking? No. Yeah. Would you speak in front of 700 people about something that happened to you? Not a chance, right? I didn't think I had anything to offer first of all, but, um, I, I was, that wasn't my thing. Um, if you'd asked me if I was going to write a book, I told you you were frigging crazy. Need to go check out. <laughs> that was, I mean, my brother's the English masters in English and Shakespeare and all that stuff. It's very, very smart guy. Very well written. I'm not that guy. They gave me a degree and I'm still not sure why, you know, <laughs> I think it's because I played football and they felt like they owed me. 
right? Because I was not studious. I was there for football and girls. Yeah. Um, but, you know, it, it all works. And even the relationships that I've made since then, you know, I'm, I'm in a Bible study with Jason Davis, Mike's brother. And I, you know, I mean, I, it's a neighbor agency, but I would have never met the guy any other way, right? I'm friends with Mike Simmons. I'm, you know, I got to walk Danny's daughter down the aisle. Um, several experiences and friendships that I've made since then that, yes, if I could change that day, I would, but I can't. And those relationships are things that wouldn't happen any other way and things I would have never done any other in it for any other reason. And I feel blessed that I've had the opportunity to do those. And, you know, I hope I continue to, you know, honor his legacy and myself and my family and, you know, that whole, you know, lemonade out of lemons or, you know, what the devil meant for evil, God will turn for good. And that's, you know, that's kind of my motto and I'm trying yeah. to live that. And when opportunities pop up and it's again, same as with therapy, if it's something out of my comfort zone or my realm, but I feel like I can do good with it. I look at my wife, we talk about it, we pray about it. And then we kind of just swallow and we're like, let's give it a shot and see what happens. If it's what God wants, right. It'll work out. And if it isn't, then we'll, you know, it'll, it'll crumble. We'll figure it out pretty quick and we'll move on to something else. And um, so far it's served us well. Yeah. It's that uh, faith-based uh you know, going after something without knowing, okay, I'm trusting you on this thing. Let's do it. You know? Yeah. Yeah. And yeah. sometimes that's a, a big leap to take. <laughs> it is, it is. And, and but, but they, my, my church has been amazing to me through this whole thing and very supportive. And um, I don't know how dark I would have gotten um, without my faith. Cause yeah. prior to this, I, you know, I'm, never, never thought about suicide, never even crossed my mind. And I was always one of those guys when I heard about it, I could never wrap my head around it. I'm like, how do you get to that point? Right. I, I just couldn't, couldn't wrap my head around it. Just not that I was down in them or faulting anything. Right. I wasn't judging, but I just couldn't figure out how you'd get to that point. And then at my lowest during all this, still never thought of it myself, but I'm like, okay, I feel this crummy and I have a very supportive family. I have a department that's helping me out. I have a church that's helping me out. I have a community that's behind me. I'm healthy and I still feel this crappy. And then I started thinking about the guy that, you know, has had two divorces. He doesn't see his kids anymore. He's living in a house by himself. He doesn't see his family and he works for a department that treats him like crap after something like this. And he's afraid to go get help for the first time. I could actually see how somebody could get to that point. Right. And, you know, and again, that's another reason why we're doing this is I hope that um, we can help them realize that there are other options. Right. And you yeah. can't get past it. Right. I mean, I'm still right. working. I don't know about thriving, but I'm still working. Right. <laughs> and, and you mentioned like community support. And that's one thing I wanted to uh, talk about. Uh, Wilson went to the uh, Brian Ishmael funeral and I wasn't able to, um, I, I wasn't going to go to the funeral. Cause obviously there's people that knew him and officers that needed to be there but i was going to go stand on the side of the road and and or whatever when i was at work but my work took me to davis that day so i was nowhere near uh that area um when you see those things um the the community support lining up the streets how much does that help you as a police officer with knowing that you know you have a, a rally of support when you have such when you have a, like i guess i'd say media basically coming down you and saying that that's the majority of people, but it's not. But when you see literal people come out in masses showing their honor for Danny and Michael Davis, how much does that help you through this process too? Does that, does that add a lot? Uh, it's huge. Cause I mean, we know that the, that the media is, is portraying what they want to portray. Right. And 
you know, there's, it's the, it's the loud few, right? I mean, they're really loud. And so it makes it seem like more and it makes it seem like everybody. And we, most of us are well aware that that's not the true case, but you know, you always hear this stuff about, Hey, we're the silent majority. We're backing you. And some of us are, you know, we're like, stop being so damn silent. Right. I mean, I I appreciate it, but you know, we, we need that. Right. And, 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 you know, I'm not asking for, you know, hundred million pats on the back or anything like that, but yeah, when, when, when we were driving down that freeway after, after the funeral to the cemetery and you see the, the overpasses lined and signs and we love you. And, you know, Dutch brothers is doing a fundraiser and they raised 90 something thousand dollars in a day because they're and their lines are lined up because people had heard that they were doing that. Right. Um, you know, when communities that you don't ask for doing it are creating benches and memorials in, in their honor when they're gone. Um, you know, all that stuff is, is huge because like I said, we know that it's, it's the, the minority that are anti law enforcement, but it's nice to see that outward showing every once in a while, just to remind us that, okay, it's not just in my head. You guys, you know, we are doing some good. We are making an impact and it makes us want to continue. It's like, you know, if we thought everybody hated us and didn't want us there, it makes it a lot harder to do your job, but you realize that, okay, I am making a difference. I can, you know, influence and, and help somebody out. It, it makes a huge difference. And I've, I saw it on Danny's, which was huge. Um, I saw it on Mike's and I've been a part of several other processions, um, even just at work, you know, somebody says, Hey, thank you for your service. I say, thank you very much. I don't need, you know, it's not like I need that to get through my day, but yeah. I'll tell you what, it puts a smile on my face. I do appreciate it. And uh, my kids, I make sure whenever we see an officer, they go up and, and shake their hand and thank them and, you know, everything else. So it makes a difference. Yeah. Um, and on that, uh, Karen had a question for you. Um, she says, uh, Karen is actually the aunt of Wilson. So huh. uh, she says, where do you find the courage to do your job, never knowing who might be your enemy on any given day? As a nurse, I've been asked that question in the face of COVID, but we at least can prepare ourselves and know the enemy before we go in. For you, the enemy could be anywhere and everywhere. And thank you for your service. So my answer to that is, and, and I know a lot of my friends are the same way. I mean, yeah, we get in the, in this to, you know, help people and all that other stuff. Right. Um, all the cliche answers, although we know the real answer, it's drive fast and carry a gun. Um, <laughs> but, you know, I go out there every day now, especially is I don't fight. I'm not fighting the person ahead of me. Right. I'm not, I'm not, I don't look at it as I'm out there protecting the entire community. Cause that's kind of overwhelming. I'm there to keep my family safe. That's behind me. Right. I'm the border between, you know, the bad guys that are out there and my kids. Now I don't live in Sacramento County where I'm working, but crime, you know, people like that don't stay where they're supposed to anyway. And for every person that I can stop doing a bad thing, maybe I'm making it a little safer for, for my family and my friends that do live out there in the community and might not, I don't want them to be victims. Right. Right. And even if that person is in jail for a day, a year or a lifetime, that's, that amount of time that they're not out hurting anybody else. And then as a human being, and like I said, as a Christian, I truly do hope most of the people I arrest that I never see again. And that just like with my kids, when I punish them, that that's the one time, right. And they learn their lesson and they don't do that again. Cause people make mistakes. Um, I, I said it in the book too. I don't look at, I mean, I believe that the suspect that did this is a truly evil person and as evil in his heart. And, but that's rare. I know, uh, some people might not feel the same way, but I've, after 20 years of law enforcement to come across true evil has been a very rare experience for me. Uh, less than a handful, I would say. Um, people do stupid stuff. They get desperate. They do bad things. They make mistakes. 
And just like me or my kids or anybody else, you have to pay for your mistakes and you have to get called on them to learn from them. But I don't judge them. I don't necessarily believe that they're bad people. I believe that they're in a bad way and they did something wrong. So I don't necessarily look like I'm fighting everybody. But like I said, I go out there every day just to try to make it a little bit safer and a little bit better for my kids so that when they grow up, maybe some of this stuff doesn't happen to them. Yeah. I think you answered this on another podcast before. Uh, have your kids ever mentioned any sort of want to go into law enforcement? Um, well, they're pretty young and and uh, whatnot. My oldest one, uh, my 13-year-old, who's bigger than me, he's friggin' huge. Uh, he said, no, he's got no, because I, I ask him every once in a while, I'm kind of curious, hey, you ever, no, no, I don't want to, I'm like, okay, good. Uh, <laughs> my middle one, um, not really either. Um, my little guy, but, you know, he's five at the right. time, you know, now he's eight, but you know, he wants to be a ninja Batman cop. So, you know, <laughs> nothing wrong with that. I'm That's hoping the best goes, kind. Yeah. I'm hoping he goes with ninja and Batman, not cop. <laughs> and I've said this before. Am I going to encourage them to go into law enforcement? I'm not. Um, I've seen too many dads bury their kids and I just, I cannot, oh God, I can't even imagine what they go through. Um, but if they chose that route, it's an honorable profession and I would respect them and I would support them to no end. And I would be so proud of them. It would be ridiculous. Yeah. I'm just not going to be the one that suggested. Yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> go, go do something, you know, go be a fireman. They like him. They like yeah. them, you know? Yeah. They just work out all day long. That's all yeah, they do. Yeah. You know, yeah. you know, fill up a boot. Chili. Yeah. Fill up a boot and fire, you know, I've one, my best friend from college works for Metro fire and we're always giving each other a hard time. And, you know, I give his kid cop stuff and he gives my kid fireman stuff. And, uh, but, you know, same team. We, I love those guys. And, you know, um, a few times that I've gotten hurt and I'm, I'm glad they're there for me. I'll tell you that. Yeah. So. I've, we've heard some stories of some firefighting antics that go on at strike teams. Mm -hmm. oh, I bet. We haven't shared those on the show, nor will we. <laughs> um, Not till those guys retire anyway. Exactly. <laughs> but they're funny. Um, and uh, a few more questions here. Uh, Sergeant George, the first part, I think you actually kind of touched on a little bit, but the second one, um, I don't think we have. Uh, he says, is there anything you would have done differently? And then the second half of that, and has this affected any type of training at the department? So as far as, I mean, and that's where that what if comes in, right? And I, you know, if you'd asked me this question at various stages in my healing, uh, it would have been different every time, right? Um, you know, like I said, learning now afterwards and, and statements and tact, you know, and, and seeing the logistics of the whole thing, um, you know, no, not really. The only thing there's actually, I was telling, telling my wife that if I were to pick two things, uh, that I would have done differently. Um, and one of them's a big, what if is like I said, um, when I saw the AR coming up, would I stayed in the fight and uh, all I really would have had a shot at is his head while he's shooting at me with my full body kind of thing. Um, I still, every once in a while, kind of like, you know, should I have, could I have, would I have. Right. And I kind of, you know, sometimes I wish I would have, sometimes I know for sure I made the right choice. Um, and then the other one, and it's not really would have changed anything, but um, instead of getting pulled away from the scene, I wish I would have been aware enough to stick around and ride with Danny to the hospital or yeah, um, that bothers me. Um, and one of my partners from that team ended up doing it and whether it's, I'm trying to, whether I'm being protective and I didn't want her to have to deal with it or whether I, you know, just felt like I should have stuck around. I don't know which one's nagging me more, right. um, but that one bothers me that I, I, I got rushed away so quickly and um 
kind of felt like I should have been there and done that and stuck with him through the hospital and that all that stuff could have waited. And I understand they were still looking for the bad guy. And so unlike some situations where either the guy's gotten dead right there, right. Or they captured him right away. Um, it was an ongoing situation. They kind of were looking for some Intel. Um, but I really wish I would have gone with him to the hospital. Yeah. That's, that's a tough one. Yeah. You know, um, do you have any, uh, I mean, I know I asked this question, uh, I, I, um, to Scott from thin line brewing, I asked him this question and he had a, a couple that I've asked, uh, you know, a couple other friends, do you have any like funny stories about between you and Danny that happened? Like, <laughs> um, yeah, there's a couple good ones. Um, so I remember one of them, uh, so we're doing a, a, a John sting. So basically we have our girls out there, our female deputies out there dressed as hookers and we're in this van and we called it our Scooby-Doo van, but it was basically like a straight pedophile van, panel <laughs> van, right? But it had like benches, it had computers, it had a periscope, it had one-way mirrors. The thing was decked out, right, on the inside, but outside it looked, I mean, like crap. Um, and so we're, him and I are in there and we're, you know, he's 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 looking through the periscope, I'm calling stuff out. Um, and uh, we're sitting in there and we're, of course, you know, making fun of the dudes that are out there picking up the girls and making <laughs> comments and just being totally like, thank God nobody's recording this stuff. And while we're sitting there, all of a sudden the van like goes like this and we both look at each other. We're like, holy shit, somebody just backed into us. And we look <laughs> out and a caddy and backed up and hit the van. And we're like, do we get out? Do we, what, do, what the hell do we do? Right. So he gets on the radio and he describes it and the dude eventually gets pulled over and um uh it was that one that one was pretty funny and then uh the one kind of mentioned in the book but um you know that time the little girl calls him a teddy bear and just laugh my butt off because oh. um, that stuck now we we called him you know teddy bear for pretty much the rest of his life there um had one where uh so we all picked on each other you know it's as, as cops and I'm, other professions too we're not picking on you or making fun of you it's probably because we don't like you exactly you know? um <laughs> you know, and so we were always on each other and it was, it was all in good fun. Well, and we kind of were teamed up. So I was with Danny and there was another set and another set. And, uh, there was one day he calls me, he went somewhere to run an errand and he calls me and I'm sitting at the desk and he's all, Hey, don't say anything to anybody. I'm like, Oh man, this is going to be good. Right. He's all going to my desk and there's a set of keys. I'm all right. He's all, I'm at the gas station at Richards and I five, I need you to come out here. I lock my keys in the car, but don't tell anybody. And so I had to, I had to drive out there and, and unlock the car for him. And he was like, he just, it was funny. Cause he was, he was like, he was very adamant. He did not want, cause he knew if I told somebody that he was not going to live that one down ever, ever. Yeah. Um, I mean, there's a whole bunch of them. We had a great, we had a lot of great, like uh, we went into a house once. I don't know. It was funny, but we were both like, uh, um, we thought there was one guy in the house and we ended up with like, you know, two handcuffed and like 10 laying on the floor with their hands so we could see them with like guns pointed around. And we're just waiting for cover to get there and hoping nobody moves because we're totally outnumbered and way over our heads. Um, and then later looking at each other and just both like almost at the same time, realizing how stupid we were for going in there and totally underestimating what we thought we were going to do. And um you know, it was just, it was a lot of stuff like that. And even, you know, uh, family wise, like I said, we went camping uh, about a month before and we're all sitting around the campfire and we have our, our littlest guy was still a baby at the time. And all the kids were in, Danny had an RV and, uh, it was a big old, like friggin', you know, touring type thing. It was huge and totally decked out. 
And uh, the kids were all in there playing and we're sitting out there having wine and beers by the fire. And all of a sudden the RV starts up and we're like, oh crap. Well, Danny pops up and he goes running in there and, you know, we hear it turn off and, and he, we hear him sign it, kind of talking to the kids and he comes out and he's laughing his butt off. And we're like, what happened? He's all, your middle guy decided he wanted to go for a drive and started, <laughs> started up the RV. And so ever since then, man, he thought, he thought Brandon was the coolest little kid. Cause he was apparently just sitting behind the wheel, holding on to it. He turned the key and was ready to go. And, um, <laughs> But he just, you know, he didn't yell at him or anything like that. He just kind of went in and be like, hey, bud, we don't do that. And then he took the key out of the of course, so he couldn't do it again. But that's funny. Um, just a ton of stuff. Like he was that guy that he'd show up a scene and you knew it was going to be okay because he was just so mellow and like, like just, just like sure of himself. Like he just knew, right? And he didn't, he wasn't one of those guys that was loved by everybody. I'm not going to sit here and blow sunshine and say that, but him and I got along great. And he was one of those guys, you either loved him or you didn't like him. I mean, it was one of the two because he was very forward told you what he thought it wasn't mean about it he was honest about it but you know a lot of people don't like that kind of thing and um you know he's just one of those kind of guys that when he was there everything was going to be cool yeah that's cool yeah yeah me and wilson have some fun stories from our our loomis armor days but they're not really crazy nothing like that they're just more dumb wilson not knowing (laughs) how to speak spanish is the only thing you know what (laughs) (laughs) I can ask for a beer in the bathroom. That's about it. <laughs> yeah, we'll do that. This guy, I guess, like he sped through like a stop sign and Wilson yells, Al Aura. And I'm in the back of the truck. I'm like, what? He's all, Al Aura. I'm all, why are you yelling that? He's all, he needed to stop. I'm like, bro, that's Alto. You're yelling at him the hour. <laughs> like, and then I haven't let that one down, nor will I. Yes. God knows, God knows he has way more on me that he hasn't yeah, even brought to the never table. Let him never let him. <laughs> um, and then uh, Sosa had a question. Uh, what defines you? Um, and it was it was originally like, does being a cop define you? Um, what what defines you as a person? Well, it's not being a cop. Um, yeah. At one point in my life, I would say it did. Right. Um, I think when we're younger, especially like that's our being, that's our existence, that's how we see ourselves. Um, but now at this point in my life, um, I would say my family and my faith define me. Um, and that's, you know, when you're young, right. You're, you want to be a, you want to, that's everything. Your cop cop life is everything, you know, overtime shift pops up, you do it. You know, you have all these dreams for different assignments, this, that, and the other thing. Um, and now, and, and I'm fully open about it is that I left a lot of my love for the job in that parking lot next to Danny when he died. Right. I don't hate my job. I still, you know, I still really enjoy my job and I still take pride in it and I'm going to do the best job I can until I'm done in six years. Um, but it doesn't define me anymore. You know, if I have a choice between overtime and, and being with my family, I take that every time. If I can pick a shift where I can still coach my boys in baseball and soccer, not a, no choice at all. Right. Um, you know, and, and as far as my faith goes, you know, I don't want anybody ever to, nobody's ever going to question where I'm coming from. Let's put it that way. There you, you, go. Know? Um, you know, even, even people at work, right. I used to not talk about it at work and I'm not sitting up there preaching to people. I'm not, you know, sitting up there ramming it down their throats, but, I do not hide it at all. I don't, you know, and I'm very open about it. And if, if it comes up, I find a way to, you know, I'll try to get it in there if I can. Um, but yeah, I mean, you know, I think, I think what you should be find out is, is what you want people to talk about at your funeral. Exactly. Um, you know, and they'll talk about work a little bit, but I'd rather have them talk about how much I love my wife and how much I love my kids and was there for them all the time. And, you know, and if I left tomorrow, if something happened, they should never question whether they were loved and whether they were number one in my life. Right. Yeah. And, 
same thing with my faith. Like they, they never will question where I'm going when I die. Um, because they know, right. It's going to be a sad, you know, we'll all miss each other, but you know, I hope at my, you know, funeral, hopefully, uh, you know, hundred years from now, uh, yeah. but, you know, I, I hope it's a party cause they know where I'm at kind of thing. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Cause it's, it's kind of, I could track with that. Cause if I look back, back before I was a dad, I'm like, man, I was more of a selfish dude back then. Makes a when huge became, difference. When I became a dad, I was like, okay, I live for this little kid every day. So I'm not going to go ride that dirt bike because something bad had happened. I'm not going to go do you that. So, go skydiving? No, not at all. <laughs> well, we just talked about that we last episode. About that, yeah. Was our our bucket list? And I said the only way I would jump out of a plane is if uh, I had a terminal illness and I had like a month to go. That's when I would do it. Yeah. Um, but until then, I, I went to Roseville and I did the iFly thing. That's the closest thing that I'll get to that. I've seen it. I haven't done it yet, but I've seen it. Yeah, they they had to crank the uh, the wind machine pretty darn high to get me up there. <laughs> um, their electrical bill is through the roof that day um how, how's the reception been on your book um i I've, i have a i'm on amazon right now looking and you got five stars all over the place um yeah it's great um i mean all the reviews have been phenomenal i think one person gave it like a one or two but that it it said purchase not verified so who knows it could have been somebody bitter Oh, yeah. like the book too. I mean, I, you know, I mean, I'm not, everybody's going to love it. Right. Yeah. Um, but no, the reviews, the written reviews have been all phenomenal. And, and we encourage people like, Hey, go write a review for us. Cause uh, you know, it does help it keep it relevant and it keeps it on their lists, algorithm and all this other crap. Right. Um, but yeah, the, the, the written reviews have been great. The, obviously it's got good stars, which is nice for us to see. Um, and then the, the feedback in person, cause we've done some book signings here and there and, um, you know, people, Hey, you want to do a book signing at our coffee shop? Sure. And I figure, you know what, if nobody shows up, I'll get a cup of coffee and hang out with my wife for a little while. And then we'll leave. Yeah. Um, we did solid ground brewery, um, up, up in El Dorado. And that was phenomenal. I'm like, Hey, nobody shows up. I'll get a sandwich and a beer and we'll hang out for a little bit and then we'll go. Right. But the, the feedback and the attendance has been really good. And, um, I mean, I had a guy that, uh, a dispatcher that was, uh, his wife came up to my wife and said, you could have possibly saved our marriage with this book. And I'm wow. like, wow, that's really cool. Um, I have a guy in our department that's talking to me about, you know, Hey, you know, how'd you start journaling? I want to start journaling because, you know, he read what was in there and he thinks it might help him. I'm like, that's awesome. And, um, you know, just talked with somebody because of the book um, involved uh, down in Stockton uh, with their recent loss and, and, you know, had a lot in common and I believe we were able to help them out. So just more and more. And then we go to these conferences and, you know, we, we were able to, you know, give it to people. And, and um, I know Liz just talked with somebody that up in Montana, we spoke up there, God, I think it's been over a year, a year and a half, two years now. Uh, but she just saw him at a conference in Atlanta, some chiefs conference thing. And they're like, yeah, we've been meaning to talk to you because after you talked, we, we are wanting to start like a spouses association and you talked about it, you know, and, and now we want to reach out and maybe you can help us. So their spouses conference is getting started because of, of my wife and stuff. And so it's been awesome. I mean, just seeing that we're able to get through to the people we want to and make an impact has been, you know, it's been inspiring and keeps us wanting to do it. Yeah. I've been seeing a lot more, uh, um, and it's been good because, I mean, we all know social media is like the place where the devil likes to hang out. Um, but And they don't like it when you post a link or anything. <laughs> I don't know if it's law enforcement or just because we're not paying. Um, but, man, I could post something stupid and I'll get like 200 likes and comments and stuff. I post something about the book with a link to it or whatever. 
I get like two thumbs up and no comments. I'm like, well, that sucks. Yeah, there's some crazy algorithm. It happens to us too. Like when we post uh, shows, um, if we put the title something, something dumb, like this squirrel has nuts or something like that, they'll be like, no, this is dumb. Um, you know, the whole th- I don't like uh, Facebook. I but- like the standards and stuff. And- yeah, but that's that's kind of like the only way we could get everything out. But um, on Instagram and on Facebook too. But there's a podcast called uh, Hashtag Breaking Barriers. Have you heard of them? Uh, no, I don't think so. Um, it's Officer Ryan Tillman. He's with Wilson. Is it uh, Pasadena? Chino, Chino Police Department. You've probably seen a video of him. He's a dancing cop that does the did the thing at the rally at the high school. Um, okay. And then. And then his buddy, AJ Johnson, is with the Columbus Police Department up here in uh, Ohio. Okay. And they basically, uh, they're breaking that barrier between um, policing and community. And so they've had on the show criminals. Yeah. And they've had on other police officers. And they're, they're, it's an open forum and they're talking. It's a great podcast. And I, I see a lot of these things. Um, and like you said, the book would be good for people to hear it and understand that you guys aren't robots you might appear that way when you're clocked in, but you know, and sometimes when you clock out, um, but you're, there's a lot going on. Cause like, you don't, a lot of times people encounter a a police officer and they go, that guy was a jerk. I'm like, well, do you, do you know what he just came from? He just picked up a kid off the highway or that he doesn't know you or what you're about. Right. You know, you you know, you weren't a threat, but you know, he, he, maybe he, maybe a week ago, he lost a friend walking up to a car like I did. And now he's walking up to a car thinking everybody has a gun in their hand, right? Because it exactly. took me a while to, to get over that. I mean, I still treat everybody like they do just because until you can confirm they don't, they might, right? Yeah. Um, but, you know, yeah, we're people too. And 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 you know it uh, from, from your time working and, and everything is when people call us, we can't show up and fall apart at a scene. Right. You know what? And so that's why we, we developed that kind of robot thing that people talk about, right? We, we seem emotionalist and all this other stuff and there's dead people on the ground and, you know, I mean, baby, you know, like I said, I've been to a couple of dead baby calls. And if mom wants me to show up for her baby that died of SIDS and she's hysterical and I show up and get hysterical, you know, they lose confidence and then you're not going to do anybody any good. Right. Yeah. Still going to affect you. And I guarantee you, if you go to a, anybody that goes to a, a little kid call and it doesn't affect them, they probably should go find something else to do because they're completely burnt out and fried. Yeah. Um, but we can't lose it there. Right. But I, that's another thing we're encouraging is you got to go home and vent somehow, right? And so one of the things my wife and I are very adamant about, and we talk about it every time, is you go to that call and you come home and she, how was your day? And you say, fine. And then you're a jerk the rest of the day. She thinks it's her fault or their mm-hmm. fault or significant other if I'm being PC. Um, but then change the scenario and it's the same scenario, right? But you come home and they ask, how's your day? And you say, it sucked. They saw a dead kid today. I don't want to talk about it. You might still be that jerk the rest of the day, but at least now they know why. And it makes a huge difference, right? Instead of blaming themselves, they know why. Still doesn't excuse your behavior and you need to work on it, right? And you need to recover and, you know, uh, you know, and all that other stuff. But just that little bit of communication, I think we become so protective. We don't want to tell them anything that when we tell them nothing, it's, it's almost worse, right? Yeah. And I think you called those uh, Danny days, right? I Yes, we still do every once in a while. It doesn't happen as often as it used to, but Sometimes it was something that happened at work and I could pinpoint exactly why I felt like crap. Sometimes I couldn't figure it out, out right? I mean, I'm you know, emotional and pissed off and whatever it is. And uh, luckily I've gotten to the point now where I can kind of recognize at least I'm feeling that way and going through it. And sometimes it's a text to her like, hey, it's a Danny day today. And 
she knows, all right, well, maybe we're not going to go out tonight. Maybe we'll just sit around and watch a dumb movie and I'll try to make sure the kids aren't completely insane when you come home and, you know, blah, <laughs> yeah. blah, blah. Not that they should have to walk on eggshells around me, but we just kind of, all right, you know, we'll change a little bit today and I'm not, I'm going to give them a little grace, you know, not that she needs to, you know, walk on eggshells and, you know, do whatever I say, but, you know, we just recognize that today kind of sucked and, and, you know, we're going to kind of do what we know works for us now. Yeah. Well, I know, like I said, we're not fully through the book yet, and uh, we were we were giving it time. We wanted to, I think, what was it after the Super Bowl to start it? Is what we did, and I read the prologue and everything first, and I I messaged Wilson and I go, dude, this is like a movie, like the way it's written, it's it's written very well. Um, I hate to use the word entertaining, just like when people say watch the movie Passion of the Christ. Oh, did you like it? Oh, it's a great movie. But I'm like, well. I, I hate that it happened, but right. it has a meaning behind it where it impacts you. And every time we watch that movie, every time it still impacts me just as much. Wilson's actually the one that bought me the book. Mm-hmm. And um, he sent me the, uh, he goes, Hey, I got a book for you. And he sent it. And then he kind of gave me a synopsis on it. I'm like, Oh my gosh, I remember that day. It's crazy that he wrote a book. And then um, I was listening to one of your other interviews and you said that this is the perfect gift to, just give to somebody like yeah. uh, if you know someone who, who is a police officer, who's going through this, or like we had the Max Fortuna thing that happened in Stockton, something like that. Um, give to them. Uh, just, this is a great opportunity. And so I want you to plug where we could find your books. I know it's, it was a couple places. Uh, yeah. And so we'll kind of on that same note before I go to that part is, you know, and we encourage people that, you know, get one for yourself. And if you know, a, if you know, an officer, you know, get one for them too. Um, and I'm not trying to sell extra books. If you, if you finish it, don't give it to somebody else. Don't, you know, and, and you don't have to have them go buy one. Just take that copy and pass it around. I hope it gets, you know, dog-eared on every corner because it, it's gone to 10 different people. I don't have to sell 10 different copies kind of thing. Yeah, uh, It's just about getting the information out and, and, and sharing the story. Um, and on that, there's several places you can get it. Uh, Amazon is, is the easiest per se. Cause you know, you just go on Amazon. It's there probably before you hit enter kind of thing nowadays. So that's one option. It's just facing evil. Um, you know, a cop store or murder mayhem, or just put facing evil, you know, Scott Brown and it'll pop right up. It's got the picture. It looks kind of like that. Yeah. Um, and, uh, and you can get that, get it that way. You can also go to the Danny Oliver webpage, uh, Danny Oliver foundation webpage. Um, and there's a link there. Uh, Liz and I have a webpage. Uh, I believe that's probably where you've seen some of the media stuff. Um, and we put all our links to all the media we've done, TV interviews, radio ones. This one will be on there eventually um, so that people can kind of catch up and listen to different stuff. And then there's a 45 minute video of one of the actual speaking engagements we did years ago in Indianapolis or in Indiana on there as well. But there's a link on there uh, to the Amazon where you can go buy it. There's also links to the Danny Oliver page on there as well, along with some of our bios. And if there's a signing or anything that's coming up, we make sure we post that on there as well. Just kind of keeping people up to date of our journey. And we're going to add some more stuff down the road. We want to add, uh, maybe some stories from officers that have read it and talked to us down the road. We want to add a photo section of when we go speak at stuff or from our different events, just, you know, to check it out for people that have been there and, make it a little more fun. We're still working on it because neither of us are tech savvy. Uh, (laughs) And then I think, and, and so there's those, um, the Danny Oliver one is a good one because, uh, half of the proceeds go to the Danny Oliver foundation instead of Amazon. 
Um, so that's nice. Um, and uh, it takes a little bit longer because it's one of us, you know, shoving it in an envelope and mailing it out. Um, but that is another way to get it. Um, and then cops concerns of police survivors, uh, the organization we speak for, and I hope I'm not getting this wrong, but I believe it's on their website now in their store as well. Um, they just recently got it on there. Um, and I think those are the main places you can find it. And I'll make sure I have a link to all those in the show notes, um, for this episode as well. So when people are listening to this and they're, Oh, I don't know. They're driving or whatever. That's when I listen to most of my podcasts. They can okay. just go back to the show and scroll down and tap it. And there it is. So Perfect. Um, that's, that's awesome. Um, yeah. I have all those pulled up right here. Uh, your website's well done for not being tech savvy, by the way. Well, we actually have a guy doing it for us. Oh, so. okay. <laughs> now, we actually paid a guy to get it started and now he, he maintains it for us. And I just send him new information. I'm like, Hey, can you add this? Can you add this? And he's like, sure. No problem. And I'm like, yeah, hey. I, yeah, no, no, he's, he did a great job with it. It's very user-friendly. Um, it's, you know, it's kind of just scroll down and click a tab and it's really easy to find. So yeah, it's, it's good stuff. Um, I got one thing about the book. How did the title come about? Was that something that was easy? It was just bam, that's it. Or did it take a while? Kind of actually, uh, um, we kind of, I kind of already thought of that a long time ago because I want to say, uh, we actually started out with the title period. Um, that was actually how we were going to start it because, uh, he had been referred to as this guy's pure evil for quite a while. Right. I mean, a, a news reporter said it at one point it was in it. I mean, several just randomly not associated people had referred to him as pure evil. So we kind of were thinking that initially. And then after kind of, we came up with a format of how we wanted to write it and what it was really trying to do. Um, um, it, and I want to say it was more Vicky than me. Uh, you know, we, she kind of is like, Hey, I, I think maybe facing evil. Right. And I'm like, that's, perfect that sounds you know and then we went through she had a, a cover guy that she'd used for a couple of her books so she's written several law enforcement books on marriage um, one's called a chip on my shoulder um, because her, she was married to a, a chp officer which is where the chip came from um, and talking about being married to him for you know in his law enforcement career 30 plus years retired as a chief the whole thing um, and that's from that's written towards the spouse great book um, i've read that one actually i think either liz or i is quoted in that one and then she had another kind of one on the other side called the marriage in progress. And that was actually written for the officer. Um, but anyway, her cover guy, he was the one we used for this and had several different renditions. And I'm like, and one of them had my face on it. I'm like, hell no, that looks <laughs> I did not want my face. In. I didn't even like that. I'm on the back, but um, you know, we had the whole, the whole thing from face off where they're facing each other from the movie poster. Right. Oh, yeah. yeah. It was me and him. I'm like, Oh no, that's not happening. And then eventually we settled on just his eyes. Those are actually the suspect's eyes on the cover. Not that we wanted him in there, but it just kind of really set the tone of like, I mean, you can see it in the guy's eyes, right? It just looks. Yeah. Um, but yeah, so we went through a couple different things and, and came up with what we got. And I, I think it's great. And like I said, facing evil, I believe is, you know, cause you're facing it, not just with him, but in your own heart and in some of the stuff you go to afterwards, um, you know, you just feel like you're getting attacked by evil, whether it's the voices that you're telling yourself, or whether it's from the exterior. And so we kind of thought that was a perfect title. Yeah, it's definitely a good okay. title. Yeah, I heard a, I heard a few stories from people up in El Dorado from when he was housed up there. And they said the guy was, it, it was crazy. He'd be nice to you one second. And then the other second, he'd be telling you he's going to kill you and your family. And it was just a roller coaster. 
they yeah. said the same thing like he's he's just evil yeah and, and honestly i don't think there's any other way to describe it and you know i i said it in the book and i think i've said it other times is you know uh you know being a man of faith everybody can be saved right maybe he can be maybe he can't be i'm not going to be the one to lead him there i tried to arrange a meeting and i i you know i only hit him in the hand i didn't hit him anywhere else <laughs> i um, like that one day he's going to have to answer for it and you know, if, if he finds the Lord in prison and gets saved, you know, I'll rejoice along with everybody else. Um, you know, like I said, I'm not going to be the one to, to introduce it, uh, but, you know, it can happen. Uh, I don't I don't think it will. The human, the, the cop in me, the victim in me is like, I don't think it's going to happen. And I think he's going to have a whole nother sentence coming and I don't want to be anywhere near him when that happens. So absolutely. Well, Scott, thanks for coming on, man. I know. Yeah, thank uh, you. We're. Uh, yeah, I was telling Wilson a couple of weeks ago, I'm like, I am so nervous about this interview. <laughs> I said, because it's like, you know, we've had some guests on that have, you know, had some stories, but like for you, like, this is like very personal Oh yeah. and um, you put a lot of heart in this book and it's like, man, like, I, I don't even know what I would ask. Like, it's like, it, it, cause it's like, it's very hard hitting and um, we're very fortunate. I'm very fortunate to have this book. It's sitting right here. It, it's funny because it, it's called facing evil, but it sits right next to me at my computer. I'm like, am I evil? Like, it's <laughs> like facing me, but it, it's like, and I keep, it's like right there reminding me every time when I'm editing the, this show, whatever it's, it's reminding me of what I just read in this book. And it, it's, I, I, like you said, I have notes in there and the highlights and stuff that I have. Shoot. I ran out of room. Now I have a, like a full on notepad that I'm running at, got to buy another notepad, you know, with leather on it to make it more manly. Well, yeah. Hey, <laughs> <laughs> well, I tell people it's, you know, yeah, the story's hard, but, um, and I've had people that are like, I had to put it down. I'm like, you got to keep reading. Here's the thing, right? The front part is hard, right? And the middle part talks about the trauma, but that third part is really what the book's all about. It's about recovery. It's about hope. And I, I hope, you know, that when people are done with it, that that's what they're left with is, is inspiration and hope as opposed to, Oh my God, that was horrible. And yeah, it was horrible, but I hope they're left with that. You can come back from something horrible. There is hope afterwards. And so I really encourage people. One, it's not a bedtime story. Don't read it at night. Oh yeah. Um, we've had people like, dude, I was starting to read about my bed and I'm like, you'll have nightmares. Don't do it. Um, but I, you know, read it and go all the way to the end. And, and I hope that they get something out of it. And then, like I said, I hope they pass it on because, you know, um, it doesn't do any good just sitting there. Right. Once you've read it, unless you plan on reading it a whole bunch of times, you know, go ahead and hand it to somebody else. Say, Hey, I read this great book. You need to read it too. Or, Hey, it's, you know, and whether it's just to get a perspective on what we do or whether it'll actually help somebody that's, that's what we're encouraging people to do. So. Yeah. I'd probably even one up that and recommend reading it at least twice because having heard your story um, multiple times on different media outlets, knowing what the outcome was, what you're doing, and then still at the beginning part of the book, knowing the outcome, but I think I'm reading what you're currently going through in the book. If you're playing it out in your head, like a movie thinking to yourself, like, how could that be the end game to what's happening right now? And, it, yeah, it, and, it, and, and for your, for your local agencies, uh, you know, wherever your listeners are at, you know, if they have a recent line of duty, death or trauma, you know, uh, I mean, talk to us or if you can, you know, do it yourself or whatever, but you know, we'll drop them off. Right. We'll, we'll send them. We'll, we want to try to get them because we want to, we want it as a resource. My wife just, like I said, she just got back from a, some chief's conference where they had a drawing 
And they said, if you get drawn, we'll send a copy to your entire agency. I don't think that was a great idea because if like NYPD did it, we'd be screwed. Right? <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah. But it turns out it was some smaller town in South Dakota. So I think we're going to be all right. But we're still probably going to send 80 copies and we're going to find somebody that'll hopefully sponsor that. Right. Because we can't I, I'm cop salary. I can't afford to do yeah. it myself. But, you know, we want to do that kind of stuff. So if you have an agency that's hurting and you think it would be a good resource for them, let us know how many you want. And, you know, whether you want to do that as kind of your charity thing and, and show us support for them or whether you say, hey, we know they're hurting, but we can't do it. What can you do to help? And we will we'll try our best to find a way, whether it's, you know, one copy or 100 copies, we'll try to find a way to get them some because um, I think I think it can be a good resource for people and give them some ideas. So, yeah, that's definitely a, uh, a great idea. I know we had an officer, um, Cassie Johnson. She got shot and killed shortly after I moved up here. Right, Wilson? Because yeah. we did a cheers for her in Charleston, which is our capital. That's an hour north of me. So maybe I'll get a couple. Just one, next time I'm up there, just drop them off and say, hey, uh, check these books out. Uh, you know, let me know and I'll get you in contact with people or whatever and maybe get them for your agency. Because that's that's our big that's our big city, which is like the size of Roseville. <laughs> it's kind of <laughs> funny. It's small. But but yeah, so everybody check out this book um, and definitely go to all those websites that we have listed in the show notes and on um, that he listed, especially the um, scottandlizbrown.com because th- there's a lot of media on there too. Um, the, what is it? The Breaching the bar- the Barricade is yeah. the, uh, the conference that you were at. And I, I was watching a little bit of that as well. And he um, still puts that one on. It was a great conference. So if you're in that, I, I want to say it's like the Northern area of, Indianapolis right on the border of Michigan somewhere up in there is where he does it and um, if you're a law enforcement guy in that area um, Jim Montrager is the guy that does it and it's it's it was a really cool conference and really well put together yeah um, and I mentioned the breaking barriers guys they put a conference on too I think um, or at least Ryan Tillman does he does a little uh, speeches and stuff and a, a lot of his stuff came out too during the George Floyd stuff because he, he he's a black officer so is uh, AJ and they're basically shooting, they were shooting down a lot of, uh, stereotypes yeah. and, and a lot of hate. They're like, Hey, like this isn't how this is supposed to be. So there's a lot of good stuff out there. And it's very reassuring that I see more stuff like this, the stuff that you're putting out, Scott, the stuff that, uh, a lot of our Instagram, uh, people that we follow, um, they're cops or former cops, um, that are putting stuff out. I think Mike, the cop is doing stuff too. Um, he, he actually, I think retired and he's doing more comedy stuff now, but he still has some stuff. But yeah. it's very reassuring seeing this half of it getting explained because it's kind of being on the defensive a little bit because the media is saying one thing. But I figure the more we get this, these stories out, the more we humanize, really, you guys, um, the better I think this world will become. So, yeah, so we thank you. Uh, thanks for coming on. Uh, thank Liz for allowing you to come on. Yeah. <laughs> and, and like I said, uh, um, you know, down the road through the book, you hit a part with her that you want to talk to. She's, you, you, I, your people will love her. She's, you know, obviously I'm biased, but um, <laughs> she does a very good job. And, and, uh, and she has an insight for, for spouses and families and stuff like that, that uh, I believe is also an area that's completely neglected and, and uh, is, is a breath of fresh air that she's heard from a lot of people. So it's a lot of, it's the, a lot of the uh, background stuff you never see happen. Yeah. So that definitely, that's a, that's a good idea. We'll definitely do that. So from Wilson and I, we want to thank you again for what you do for Sacramento County. And, and now I guess the whole entire country, cause you're sending the book out 
and you're influencing right. people, which right. is amazing. So we want to thank you. All right. Thank you. All right. That was good. Well, just post that. Let's go. Yeah. <laughs> so what do you think of that? It was good. Yeah. yeah. He does a good job of just telling the story. That's powerful, man. A lot of the questions that I had written on the paper here, I didn't even have to get to because yeah, he, he answered, he answered them. them and and he, he wasn't kidding when he said a lot of the questions were answered in the book. You know, yeah. I do I do have questions probably based upon, you know, little details in the book when we get later down it with like the trial and everything. But I think a lot of them are going to get answered. So I'm uh, really, really um, glad that we he's on our side, you know, that especially in your area that you guys have someone like him who's yeah. fighting for this half of uh, police work and um, the behind the scenes thing. Cause like you said, it, it, it's, they're not robots. They have feelings. And, and especially when it comes to the wives, you know, they're, they're the backbone of, I mean, what was the statistics? Like a lot of like police officer, 60%, married, like they end like in, that they end in um, divorces. Yeah. And it's so easy to walk away from a traumatic experience. Um, yeah, we'll have all those and all that stuff in the show notes um, that he was talking about. There was a, there's a, a, a long list of things and it's not just um, stuff in here about the book. Like we talked on the other show, the Danny Oliver foundation, you know, there's, there's they're swag and, and like swag that like supports the Danny Oliver foundation. Um, yeah. There's the, the book there. Then there's, you could donate to the softball club. There's shirts, pens, um, challenge coins, all sorts of cool things. Um, you know, it, it's not all, it, it's not, it's like the podcast, Wilson, you know, we make $0 off this. <laughs> um, but our mission is to promote um, good law enforcement stories, even though sometimes they have an initial negative about it. Right. But that end up becoming inspirational. And uh, even though they lay down their life and maybe it's not the greatest ending, um, we want to recognize those who lay down their life for us. And yeah. so this was, uh, this was different for us because we've never actually had anybody on who's been, I mean, you're, we had your dad who was in a fairly close situation, Yeah. Um, but it, it didn't go to this area. And I, I love the fact that um, it ends up talking about faith. And he also mentioned we need more men you know, in the world. Um, yeah. Too many people. There was a statistic that came out that, uh, I, I would like to get the, uh, maybe I'll, on next show, I'll have the statistic ready, but it's, uh, how many people would take up arms if war came here? Like what happens in Russia and Ukraine? And it was like the, the higher percentage were, were men in their like fifties to sixties. Yeah. Um, the lower percentage were the young guys, the guys who are actually able-bodied are like, no, I don't want to. That's our demographic. We need to go after. Um, I feel like mine and your era of where our age is, is where that stopped. Yeah. And so we got to look what happened between that era where people are not wanting to um, fight for their community. Like what Scott said, where, you know, he wants to, you know, he doesn't live in the County where he works but he wants to, you know, help maybe that community once. So it doesn't come into his community. And the more you spread that out, it's going to like, hopefully spread like a wildfire and just like take over. Yeah. Um, we want to thank Scott again for coming on the show. Um, yep. I can't wait to have him on after, or even during the other episodes of the book. 
Um, can't wait to read more into this book after talking to him. Super nice guy. And I'll have all his stuff in the show notes. We also want to thank MSR Arms for putting on this little show. Make sure you use offer code WTH5 at checkout for 5% off your entire purchase. And Thinline Brewing at thinlinebrewing.com. They got lots of cool swag and some yummy beers. Go uh, check them out. Um, they're good friends of ours. Um, you can listen to us on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Podbean, Amazon, Google Play, pretty much anywhere where you can hear podcasts. Uh, we are on Socialist Media, on Facebook, Instagram, YouTube, Untapped. Untapped is where Wilson puts all those awesome beer pictures. So all of our beers are recorded there. And you can also contact us at 916-259-3030. You can text that number as well. Or email us at therealwtho at gmail.com. And so, Wilson, that's all I have, man. That's it. All right, well, bye. Later, dudes. I hate goodbyes. <laughs> oh, and in case I don't see you, good afternoon, good evening, and good night. I will see you there, or I will see you on another time. I'll be back. Rose? Where we're going, we don't need Rose. I'll catch you on the flip side. You got it, Joe. I do wish we could chat longer, but I'm having an old friend for dinner. Latest on the men, Jay. Thank you, everybody, the fan. Did that go the way you thought it was going to go? Then let's go, Brandon. Let's go, Brandon. I agree. I'm Joe Biden, and I can't remember this message. Stop it!